Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in Proverbs chapter 16 tonight. Last week we got as far as verse 9, which we will probably look at a bit tonight as well. Remember that chapter 16 verse 1 says, the plans of the heart belong to a man. And then verse 9 says, the mind of a man plans his own way. Tonight we're going to see that there is a way that seems right to a man. And in all those instances, the contrary statement is that God directs our steps or God gives the answer to the tongue or that there is a way that seems right to men, but the end is destruction. That theme is still going to come up. However, starting at verse 10, Solomon makes a little left turn and starts talking about what it is to be king, the responsibilities of being king. I don't think he's just writing this for his own edification. I think he's leaving this behind for his sons behind him who might graduate to be king, or he could even be writing to the surrounding kings of the surrounding nations and calling them to righteousness. So Solomon is the third king to rule over national Israel, all 12 tribes collectively. He is the last king also to rule over all 12 tribes collectively because during the time of his son, that's when God takes the 10 northern tribes and separates them from Judah. So there is still a succession of kings in the southern kingdom in Judah, but then there is a completely separate monarchy that develops in the northern kingdom. So Solomon His entire uh, responsibility as king, very much like David's was, is to direct his people toward the things of God. In other words, the rules of the nation are the rules that God himself gave. God has already said in the law, has already determined what sort of nation Israel ought to be. And he has already established their basic jurisprudence, things like the Ten Commandments live like this. And the other 613 ordinances all give direction for what kind of people they should be, unlike any of the other nations on the planet. And so the job of the king is to be the judge in God's place, but it is also to uh, admonish people and encourage people to follow after the rules that God has laid out for Israel. And of course, we all know how well that went. But that's still the primary job of the king of Israel, unlike the kings of any other nation. Kings of other nations could make up their own rules. They could decide how their people were going to behave and what was enough or what was too much or what they could get away with. And that wasn't the case in Solomon's situation. Solomon was to follow the rules that were laid out by God specifically. So when he made a decision, when he announced something, he was able to say here in verse 10, 
that it is a divine decision that is in the lips of the king. If he is following after the dictates of God, if he's following after the law of God, then the things that he commands, the things that he proposes, the things that he serves judgment on, all of those things should comport with the law of God. And therefore, when he makes his judgment, when he makes his decision, that is, in essence, a divine decision because he's deciding it based on what the law of God has already told him to do. So a divine decision is in the lips of the king, and his mouth should not err in judgment. I think what he's getting at there is he doesn't have the wherewithal to just decide for himself what he thinks is right or what is proper. It is already defined for him. It's already laid out in the law. And therefore, if he says anything contrary to the law of God, he's erring. He's making a mistake. The things that he determines, the judgments that he lays out have to be in accordance with the law of God. So his mouth should not err in judgment. The judgments that he lays out should always be in accordance <coughs> with what God's law has already determined for him. Now, one of the things that a king would do is determine weights and balances. For instance, without knowing what uh, we have all mutually agreed is a gram of something, if somebody just walked up to you arbitrarily and said, give me exactly a gram of something, you wouldn't know how. How do I measure that? How many granules of salt is that? Or how much weight is that? What do I compare that to? So one of the things that the king did was to establish the measurements for weighing out things or for determining how much a bushel is. That was all up to the king. And it's the same way today. If we didn't have the government telling us how much an ounce is, we wouldn't know what an ounce is. How many of you are able to go to the kitchen sink and just pour a cup of water? Exactly a cup. Well, you couldn't do that. If your recipe calls for a cup of cream, you're going to measure it with a measuring cup. That's why we have measuring cups. And all of those are determined by somebody. Somebody somewhere at some point sat down and said, this is how much it is. Now, in Second Samuel, I do believe it is, we read about a weight, weighing out a proper weight, and it says to do it by the royal measure. And so it is by the king's determination how much things weighed. And you need to know that to understand verse 11. It is not just morally correct that you have a just weight and a just balance. That's what verse 11 says, a just balance and just scales belong to the Lord. So that's an interesting statement. What he's saying is, it is God through the king who has determined that when you're trading, when you're bargaining with somebody, when you're weighing out product to them in exchange for an equal weight of something else, that your weights and your balances, your scales, have to be equally measured, equally balanced, so that they don't tilt in favor of one side or the other. What people would do is they would keep weights in their bag, various different weights, so that they could say, okay, this is how much a gram is. There we go. This is a kilogram. Okay, this is how, although they didn't, they weren't on the metric system. 
but they would be able to say, okay, this is how much this weighs based on the weights that they would keep in their bag. But what people would do is that they would shave off some of those weights so that they could change the weight. It would look right, but it would actually be inaccurate so that it would benefit the person who was doing the weighing. So in all business, in all commerce, Solomon is calling for fairness. But he's also saying that that kind of fairness, a just or a right or a proper balance and proper scales, that's what the Lord expects. That belongs to the Lord because that's what the Lord's righteousness would require of people when they do their business. And all the weights of the bag are his concern. Okay, now that's really kind of fascinating again. Last week, I told you that you can't understand the things that we're reading in verse 16, or indeed anything you're reading in Proverbs. But you can't really understand it if you don't understand that Solomon sees a completely sovereign God being behind all these things. Because he's saying it's more than just thievery to change the weights that are in your bag. He's saying that concerns God. God is interested in whether or not you're serving correctly whether you're being just, whether you're being fair with other people. The first part of this chapter said things like, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, and assuredly he will not go unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. And when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Uh, Okay, now those kind of statements are dependent on the notion that God is sovereign. How does God make a man's enemies be at peace with him? Just because the man is being righteous. Same idea here, that God is concerned with the appropriateness, the proper weight that is inside your bag when you're doing your business. It's more than just, I say again, it's more than just the morally right thing to do. It's actually representing God. God cares about these things. In fact, this is the chapter. Look at the very last verse of the chapter, verse 33. This is the chapter that says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That whole idea of being able to throw lots to determine the rightness or the wrongness or the judgment of something, knowing that God is determining the end result, that's completely dependent on the notion that God is sovereign. And so sovereign that he's sovereign over every tiny little detail. When Jesus was walking on the planet, he said, notice the birds, notice the sparrows. And he was designating them as nothing. Two of them are sold for a farthing, half a penny. I mean, they're just not, and yet, he says, not a one of them can fall from the sky without your father. So without God's express permission, birds don't even fall from the sky. The reason birds eat regularly and live is because sovereign God is in charge of his universe in all the detail. So you're going to cheat in your business a little bit. You're going to cheat somebody in your weights, in your balances. You're going to do a deal with somebody, but it's not going to be a win-win deal. It's going to be a I win, you lose deal. And Solomon says God is involved in that. God is concerned with that. God looks into that. 
So a fair, a just balance and scales belong to the Lord. That's what it is to be godly, is to be fair with people and to be just with people. A fair, properly balanced scale belongs to the Lord, and all the weights of the bag are his concern. Are they right? Are they wrong? Have you shaved them off? Because God is in control of everything, including casting lots into laps. Even that he's in charge of. So Solomon sees God as being completely, utterly, absolutely sovereign. Not just partially sovereign. Not just in control of some stuff. There are people who will tell you God's in control of the big stuff. But then when big stuff happens, like a hurricane or a flood, they go, where was God in this? God is in charge of all the stuff. The big stuff, the hurricanes, the floods. He's in that. He's in the volcanoes. He's in the earthquakes. But he's also in the throwing of lots. Just the determination of how lots are going to fall is in the domain of God. Sparrows falling from the sky is in the domain of God. So no matter how many examples you look at in the Bible, you can't find that line where you say God is in control of everything down to here, but that everything below that he's not in charge of. In fact, what the Bible keeps saying is even the minutiae, even the details, he's in charge of. Which means, by the way, that even on a cellular level, God's still in charge. I mean, after all, he created them. He's still in charge of them. You have your hand up. Uh, what is a lot? Is it dice? It's sort of like dice. It was a way that a judge... In fact, here, since you asked, look over at chapter 18, verse 18. It was a way that a judge could determine the rightness or the wrongness of things by leaving it up to God. The same way that after Judas killed himself... And they decided, yeah, and they decided to pick a replacement for Judas. They did it by casting lot, drawing straws, leaving it up to what we would call chance, knowing that there is no such thing as chance, but that it is God who determines the outcome of everything. If you look at chapter 18, verse 18, it says, the lot puts an end to contentions. So if you've got two people who have come to the king, to the judge, to determine their contention, who's right, who's wrong. Then he even said, casting the lot and leaving it in God's hand, once that has been determined, ends the difference between them, ends the contention between them. The lot puts an end to contentions, and it decides between the mighty. So we don't know what it looked like, but we know, know it wasn't like modern dice, but it's the same kind of concept. It was probably a a two-sided yes-no kind of object. And you would cast the lots, and then whatever it determined, the assumption was, well, that's what God, who's sovereign, decided was going to be the end of this contention. So that's why Solomon could say the lot is cast into the lap. Every decision is from the Lord. Therefore, if two people have a contention, we can cast the lot to find out who wins. And that's the end of it. That's the end even for mighty men, he says. Make sense? Yes, thank you. Okay. All right, so actually, having skipped around here, we're back at verse 12 of chapter 16. It is an abomination. We've seen this word a lot in Solomon's writing. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. Now, he can't be talking about 
all kings everywhere because there were lots of wicked kings in other nations. He has to be talking about those kings that are assigned to rule over Israel by God himself. Remember, by the way, that so far, the three successive kings of Israel were each handpicked by God. First, Israel came and said, we want to have a king. And Samuel goes to God and says, what about this? And he says, okay, if, if they're not satisfied with me as their king, I'm going to give them a king, and he's going to be a ruinous king to them. So you go tell them he's going to tax you heavily. He's going to take all the best of your stuff and the best of your land and the best of your produce. And just let him know, let the people know that he's going to be a a difficult king for you and you're really going to have to pay for the privilege of a king and they say yeah okay yeah that's good we're good with that and so he gives them King Saul and do you remember what King Saul's specific characteristic was that made him so kingly he was tall that was it he was a head taller than everybody else you read nothing about his wisdom in decision making you, need, you read nothing about his commitment to God and God's law what you read is he looked like the other kings. He looked scary to other kings because he was a head taller than everybody else. That's how he won the king of the day program. He got to be king because he was tall. Okay, so God chose him specifically and then chose David, the man after God's own heart. Chose David and anointed him to be king while he was still out tending to his father's sheep. So he was a shepherd who was lifted up to be king by God himself. Okay, and then he has the affair with Bathsheba, and their firstborn son is killed. But then later Bathsheba has Solomon, and that's the king, not through his other wives. He had other wives. It was going to be Bathsheba's son. It was going to be Solomon specifically who was going to be the next king. So there were only three kings who ever ruled over national Israel, all 12 tribes, and God designated every one of them. And therefore, because God is in charge of who the king of Israel is, it's an abomination for kings to commit wickedness because God is righteous and holy. And God is the one who determined who would be the king. So then the king, as the representative of God in the nation, is to adjure people, call people, instruct people in the ways of God and in the ways of the law. So that would be an abomination for kings to commit wickedness because the throne, says the second half of this verse, the throne is established on righteousness. Now the word on, that preposition, can be on, it can be by righteousness, it's established through righteousness. There's a little bit of vagary there on the particular direction or preposition in the Hebrew, but we'll get some idea of what that phrase means, a throne is established on righteousness, by looking at a couple of verses. So Tom, if you would, look up Proverbs 20, 28. And if you would, Steve, look up Proverbs 25, 5. Micah, you want to look something up? Look up Proverbs 29, 14. What were the chances he was going to say, no? <laughs> Just no way. What are you saying? In each of these verses, you're going to read that the throne, he's speaking specifically of the throne of Israel, the throne of his father David. After all, his father David had the Davidic covenant 
that Israel was never going to be at a loss of a descendant of David to sit on the throne ruling Israel. And so that throne particularly, that dynasty particularly, he says, must be established in righteousness, by righteousness. That should be the hallmark of it. If that king, somebody in David's line, were to commit some kind of wickedness, that would be an abomination, considering it is the throne established by God. So, Tom, you've got Proverbs 20, 28. And I didn't even have to tell him to stand up. See there? I am trainable. (laughs) Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. We have the addition of it is steadfast love that's going to establish that throne. So it's not just doing righteousness and following after God, but notice the same way that a couple of weeks ago we saw that combination of righteousness, godliness, and love. That's also in Solomon's thinking, that part of what genuine righteousness, genuine kingship would be is a genuine affection, a genuine love for your fellow man so that you're judging them in righteousness. You're judging them appropriately. And what does Proverbs 25.5 say, Steve? I think we probably should read verse 4 as well to set the context where it says, take away the dross from the silver and the smith has material for a vessel. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king and his throne will be established in righteousness. So you take away the wicked from the king and then the throne is established in righteousness. Same phrase that we're seeing here. The throne is established in righteousness or by righteousness or through righteousness the throne is established. So a king who was a proper judge, one of the things that he would do would be to cast the wicked out of the kingdom, to judge the wicked, to judge the unrighteous in order to bring about righteousness within his kingdom. And that's what it was to establish his throne. And Micah, since the other two have stood up, I think it is incumbent on you (laughs) to stand up and read... Proverbs 29, 14. If a king judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. There you go. Judges the poor with truth. That's part of what a king did. He was the judge. And if he's judging in favor of rich people simply because they're rich and they can benefit him, that's not righteousness. If he judges the poor righteously, correctly, even though they're of no benefit to him directly. That is an example of love, and that is an example of righteousness. And that is how you establish a throne for a king. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. Verse 13, then, since the throne is established in righteousness... Then the people who are around the king, who are giving counsel to the king, who are speaking to the king, should also be righteous people. And they should say righteous things to him. So verse 13 says, righteous lips are a delight to the king. So it is necessary that the people who are counseling the king, that are speaking on behalf of the king, that are giving the king advice, it's really incumbent on them that they speak righteous things to keep him a righteous king on a righteous throne. Righteous lips are a delight of kings, and he who speaks rightly 
is loved. And what did we read earlier? Love is what establishes the throne. So this all kind of ties together. I think you're getting the feeling here that Solomon is saying in order to be a proper king over God's people, it is important that you are just, that you are fair, that you treat people regardless of whether they are rich or poor. You regard them with righteousness and with appropriate love. And if you are fair and appropriate to all those people, then your kingdom, your throne is going to be established because God, who is righteous and fair and holy, is going to establish that throne. All of that, I think, is why verse 10 said, a divine decision is on the lips of the king because he's going to do those things that are godly, proper, and fair. And that takes us to verse 14. On the other hand, you do want to be righteous when you're talking to a king. You do want to have righteous lips when speaking to a king. That is a delight. But if you don't, if for some reason you cross the king, verse 14, the wrath of a king is as a messenger of death. Why? Because the king has the power of life and death. The king has the ability to throw you in a dungeon somewhere and forget about you. The king has the ability to speak judgment against you. So knowing that, it would be wise, it would be intelligent, it would be appropriate to make sure that you're not a false witness before the king, that you're not speaking foolishly before the king, that you're demonstrating proper wisdom before the king, because the wrath of a king is like the messenger of death. And a wise man will appease the king's anger. A wise man will not inspire the king's anger will not stir the king up until the king says, okay, that's it, off with his head. That would be wisdom. That would be smart. That would be using your head and not losing your head. See how that works? The wrath of a king is as the messenger of death, but a wise man will appease it. I was just looking back at, at uh, First Kings and First Chronicles in the early chapters. As Solomon was established as king David gave his son some advice to finish up what he had not finished Mm -hmm. and he acted very dynastically in establishing his throne from Mm -hmm. people who had tried to set Adonijah as king Mm -hmm. and it ended in death for all of those people except the high priest who still was kicked out of the priesthood and said go home and live um and it was after that that God came in and said, ask whatever you want, and Solomon asked for wisdom. He acted wisely, yeah. but wanted more wisdom, which I mm-hmm. think is incredible. But it also and demonstrates so, how the king the can king wipe people out if he wants. Of death, even if you're holding on to the horns of the altar, doesn't yep. matter, kill him. Yeah. It's a lot of power for any one man to carry. You better hope that anybody who has that kind of power is also a godly, righteous person. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That takes us to verse 15. In the light, here again is the opposite. His wrath is like a messenger of death, but in the light of the king's face, there is life. If he's happy, if his face is light, if he approves of you and you've made him happy and he loves you and you've spoken appropriate wisdom to him, that's a delight to him. And in the light of the king's face, 
there is life. And in his good favor, as opposed to his wanting to put you to death, in his favor, that's like a cloud with a spring rain. Now, we don't really feel the comparison that Solomon is making here quite as much because we're not so dependent on spring rain for our food. But just like we talked about on Sunday, job one in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, or in Solomon's case, almost 3,000 years ago, job one every day was find food. And if there was a famine, nobody had food. You were dependent on the rain, especially the spring rain. If the spring rains didn't come at their appropriate time, you didn't have food that year. Solomon picks that example up and says that the favor of the king is like a cloud of spring rain. Now you get it, now you feel it. It's like, boy, if you walk into the king and his face lights up because he's happy to see you, that's a good day. You're feeling good about that day. Everything's going to go your way. The light of the king's face is life, which is the opposite of the wrath of the king, which is death. So I think overall, Solomon is telling us, uh, I'm king, make me happy. (laughs) I'm, I'm king. And as I said last week, when I was introducing at the end of the... Of the night. This isn't even worth saying now. I should have just gotten to it. Look, it's good to be king. That's all I'm saying. It's just, it's... Verse 16 then is the end of his talking about kings and instruction to kings. And he says something we've seen several times already how much better it is to get wisdom than to get gold. If you're really rich and really foolish, and then you inspire the wrath of the king, what good does your money do you? It's better to have appropriate wisdom, and that's better than having gold. And it's better to get understanding than to be getting chosen silver. So to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. So if you have the option in this lifetime, just like Steve was saying, that Solomon had the opportunity before God. God said, ask what you will. He could have said, uh, gold and silver, please. You know, everything around me should be gold and silver. Thank you. But because he asked for wisdom in order to judge the people of Israel correctly, for that reason, God said, I'm going to give you that, and I'm going to give you the gold and silver. But the priority was the wisdom. Get the wisdom first. It's better to have appropriate understanding of things and appropriate wisdom, which brings you to the fear of God. That is better than all the gold in the world. Mm. And Jesus said the same thing. What's a man going to give in exchange for his soul? I mean, even if you die with all the gold in the world and then you have to stand before God and give account for your sin and Christ has not died for you, what what are you going to give him in exchange? What are you going to say? You can't do that to me. I'm Bill Gates. I'm Jeff Bezos. You know, we know who the rich people are, but the minute they drop dead, not so rich anymore. Better to have the wisdom that accompanies the fear of God. That's better than gold. And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. Verse 17 says, the highway of the upright We talked a couple weeks ago about what a highway is. A highway is a 
a path, a road that has been cleared of the brush and the rocks and everything else. So it's smooth traveling over a highway. So what he's saying is the smooth travel of the upright, if you want your life, if you want your way, if you want your if you want the, the benefits of this life to go your way, well, then you depart from evil. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. That's just going to make it smoother for you. It's going to make it easier for you. If, in fact, you belong to God, and this is something that I have seen people go through time and time again, if, indeed, you belong to God and he is your righteous father, he is going to punish you. He's going to chasten you. He's going to correct you out of love because you belong to him. And I tell people all the time, why do you keep banging your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty? The wise man would just go ahead and do it his way because he's going to keep correcting you to do it his way until you give in. So the sooner you admit it, the better life's going to go for you. The easier life's going to be for you if you just admit, okay, God, you're, you're in charge, and you're sovereign, and you said be righteous, and I'm going to follow after, to the best of my ability, I'm going to follow after your rules, your precepts. So the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. And he who watches his way preserves his life, that's what I was just saying. The person who's careful about his way. Remember when we began tonight, we read the verses that said things like, the mind of a man plans his way. The plans of a heart belong to a man. There's a way that belongs to men that they think is right. Men have this amazing ability to justify their way no matter what. But in each of those cases, Solomon would contrast it with, but God who is sovereign is going to judge those people who think that their way is right. The end of it is going to be destruction. And so he who watches his way, says verse 17, he who's careful about the way he conducts his life actually ends up preserving his life. You're not only preserving it here in this world, you're also preserving it eternally as you're following after the things of God. So the highway of the upright is to depart from evil, and he who is careful about his way preserves his life. And then, my goodness, how often have we seen this? We've talked about it week after week after week. Proverbs is just chock full of it. The Bible, in fact, is chock full of it, so much so that it is drilled into your collective brain now. I can say to you, what is the most often cited sin in the whole Bible? Pride. pride. We just all know it's pride. It's that human egocentricity, that self-assurance, that self-security, that I'm, I'm good, I know what I'm doing, and I'm not going to have anybody tell me any different. It's up to me. That's the way I'm going. That kind of pride goes before destruction. Pride, says the King James, goeth before a fall. And we know that. It's an adage that people who don't even read the Bible, who don't even know the Bible or care about Christianity, they know that phrase. It's become part of popular culture. They just know, well, pride goes before a fall. And usually they say that when they see somebody kind of lift themselves up and then maybe... You know, they get demoted at work or something, and they'll say, well, pride goes before a fall. 
But what God is actually saying here through Solomon is, if you go through your life not watching your way, not being careful to do the wise, godly things in your life, if you do that, that kind of self-sufficiency and pride leads to destruction, to God-type destruction, to outer darkness-type destruction. At some point in this life, if God loves you, at some point in this life, he's going to break you. At some point in this life, he's going to teach you better. We do it with our children. We do it because we love our children. We don't do it to strangers' children because we don't want to get arrested. Yes. We don't, if I'm walking through a mall and I see a couple of kids acting up, I don't go spank them. That's not my job. They're not my kids. If I'm walking through a mall and I see my kids act up or do something like, try to shoplift or something? Oh, they're going to hear from me immediately. They're going to be... (laughs) Exactly right. They're going to be suitably punished because I'm their father and I love them. Therefore, if God is indeed your father and you are just intrinsically, from the time you come out of the womb, you are just a completely egocentric, self-centered person. Anybody who's ever had a baby knows that babies immediately demand their own way all the time. You do it my way or I'll never let you sleep. (laughs) We're doing things my way. From now on, I'm in charge here. That's just the egocentricity that is natural to human beings. And if God leaves you to yourself, just like if parents leave their children to themselves, those children are are going to grow up to be brats. And if God leaves you to yourself, you're going to grow up to be a sinner. And then you're going to grow up to be in the way of destruction. So if God truly loves you, if he genuinely loves you, he's going to correct you. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son that he receives. So whether Old Testament or New Testament, you see that this is how God deals with his own People And if God has never dealt with you that way, guess what that means about you? Probably not his child. He's just leaving you to yourself. I've seen people go through struggles and trials, and they will ask, why would God do this to me? And I usually relate it to, why did your parents do it to you? (laughs) Why did your parents throw some tribulum on you? They did that to correct you, to instruct you. God's doing the same thing. And one of the most difficult things to assess, to determine when people are going through a hard time, is whether you ought to get involved in trying to lessen what God is already doing in their life. Do you understand that sentence? It's a horrible sentence. I'll see if I can do it better. If somebody's going through a difficulty in their life, a trial in their life, Because God is teaching them something. God is instructing them. God is building up their faith. This is going to result in their understanding and wisdom and dependence on God. Then our natural tendency when we see people going through trouble, struggles, pain, trials, the tendency is we want to help. We want to get in there and fix it. But it takes a lot of discernment to know whether this is something you ought to really be fixing. 
It takes wisdom. This is the necessity of wisdom to understand what God is doing in the world. And sometimes God is teaching and instructing his children by the things he's taking them through. And you can be there. You can walk alongside. You can carry some of that burden with them. But you don't want to get in the way of what God is doing. Because he's going to do it anyway because he's sovereign. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Because, boy, I, I have dealt with that enough in the last 19 years. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling, stumbling, tripping, falling down. So if God's word can say definitively that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit goes before falling down, then the better part of wisdom would be to go, okay, uh, I understand pride is bad. I understand that a haughty spirit is bad. Therefore, I should watch the things I do, the things I say, the way I conduct myself with other people. I should demonstrate the love of God and the love of Christ in the way that I approach people. I should be kind. I should be generous to people. Because if I don't, that's a sure path to destruction and falling down. Does it have to be more clear than that? Verse 19 says, it is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly. That's exactly right. He just contrasted a haughty spirit, which leads to stumbling, with a humble spirit. It's better to be of a humble spirit with the poor people, with the lowly, with the people who have no wealth advantage or political advantage. People who can't do anything for you. We have a tendency, being self-serving, egocentric people, we have a tendency to be attracted to people who can do something for us. If they can benefit us in some way. Or if we're good to those people, we want to make sure they saw it. You realize I was good to you, right? You owe me. <laughs> and here Solomon says, if you're of a humble spirit, but you're among the lowly while you're in that state of humility, he says, that is better than to divide the spoil with the proud. So even if you're around a bunch of wealthy people, well-to-do people, people who can benefit you, but they're haughty, but they're proud, but they're arrogant, that's no advantage to you or ultimately to them. The way of destruction from God is coming to them. In other words, get away from them. Be among the lowly and be humble when you are. That's the better way to live. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And then last week we began by looking at verse 20. He who gives attention to the word shall find good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. In that parallel statement, Giving attention to the word is the same as trusting in the Lord. If you're looking at the word of God and adhering to the word of God, living by the word of God, that is a demonstration that you trust the word of God. How often have you heard me define faith as standing on the word of God and believing it is more true than your circumstances? Because the thing that most frequently undermines people's faith is circumstances. Usually because they have an unrealistic expectation of what God ought to do for them. 
Usually they say, well, I've come to Christ. I deserve my Cadillac and my bigger home, and all my kids are good-looking and can run faster and jump higher. And they just expect that. And when life doesn't go that way for them, they blame God. Where is God in all this? But genuine faith says that God's word is more true than your circumstances. So even if your circumstances turn in a way that is ultimately corrective for you, if God is bringing trouble into your life because he's teaching you, training you, building you up in faith, at the time, that's just not fun. It's not pleasant. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. No discipline, no correction is pleasant at the time, but it brings about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so it is necessary to pay close attention to really not just read, but read with wisdom, with understanding, the very word of God. And if that's what you're doing, you're demonstrating that you trust the Lord. You trust Yahweh. You trust God, regardless of what's happening in your life. Can anybody here think of circumstances you've gone through that undermined your faith for you? That made you start thinking, where is God in this? Well, if you can't think of any, then you're probably lying. Because we being egocentric human beings who are just self-centered and who judge the reality of life based on what's happening to us, there are always circumstances that we go through that make us think, where's God? If God was here, I wouldn't be going through this. Or if I had more faith, I wouldn't be going through this. Or if I, you know, why would God do this to me? Or, And it, it gets in your way. It undermines your Confidence, But here Solomon is saying, just like the rest of the word, trust God. Trust what the word says. The word says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Therefore, Paul says, so be content with what you have. Okay, so you can only be content in this life. You can only be satisfied in this life if you understand that whatever your circumstances are and whatever you have in this life and whatever is happening in this life, that is what God has determined for you and he's never left you and he never forsook you. Even though it might sometimes feel like, where's God in all this? Well, the way Solomon puts it is, pay attention to what the word says. And if you pay attention to the word, what you're going to find in the word is good. You're going to find stuff like God is in everything. God works out everything according to his own plan, his own decision. What you're going to find is all things work together for good to those who love God. According to his purpose, you're going to find that kind of stuff in the word when you pay attention to the word. Sadly, there are people running around who think that they are representatives of God on the planet. I won't even say that they are Bible teachers. But there's precious little Bible to what they're teaching. There's a whole lot of opinions of men. And uh, you know it's true that whatever you're converted with is what you're converted to. And if you're converted with promises of unending welfare then you're going to go through your life believing in unending welfare. That God is always good to you and is supposed to be. And that everything should go your way all the time. And then the first time that, that life goes the way the Bible says, the first time you encounter real trouble, you're going to wonder about God. Where's God in this? Because you've been taught the wrong stuff. You need to pay attention to what the Bible actually says 
that will prepare you, that will give you the proper wisdom to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the troubles of this life, the God-hatingness of this world. You'll be ready for all that because you trust in the word, you trust in God, and you've paid attention to what he actually says. For instance, in this particular church, we go by the nickname Calvinist. We believe in sovereign grace, theology, whatever nickname you want to give it. We believe in the theology of the Protestant Reformation in this church. Have you ever tried to tell somebody about the electing grace of God and they don't want to hear it? Okay, why don't they want to hear it? Because is it in the Bible? Yes. Yes, it's absolutely in the Bible. So why don't they believe it? Because they didn't pay attention to the word. They paid attention to their concepts, their traditions, to what maybe mom or dad taught them, or maybe their preacher taught it to them, but they're not getting it from the word of God. If they were trusting God and aligning themselves with what the word of God says, you'd have no trouble saying, oh yeah, God elects. They'd go, sure he does, that's what it says. God predestines and he's sovereign over everything, including throwing lots into the lap. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. They go, yes, absolutely. But you have to pay attention to the word to get that. To get that which is the godly type of wisdom that the world just doesn't get. The world doesn't understand that. But if you pay attention to the word, you're going to find these good things. Because once you know that God has elected and he has predestined and he has determined the outcome and he did all that with you in mind, well, that's good. (laughs) That's gooder and gooder. Once you find out that Jesus died to pay your sin debt utterly and completely so God's not angry at you anymore, mighty darn good. If you pay attention to what the word says, what you find is good. And blessed is he who trusts the Lord. So those who are wise in heart, says verse 21, those who are wise in heart will be called, will be identified by being discerning. I've used that word a couple times tonight. We have to be discerning. We have to be clear thinking. We have to determine what's really going on in this world. If you look at the world or you pick up the news every day or you get online and you read the news feeds, it looks like the world is just in chaos. It looks like so much random weird stuff is going on that it's just mind-boggling. How can this be happening? And if you're discerning, if you're understanding, then you know that God has said that he's still in charge of all this. The world might look like it's running crazy, but it's in the hands of a completely sovereign God who said in his word that it was going to be like this, that the world was going to wax worse and worse. Sure enough, that's what's going on. So then... If you pay attention to God's word, if you trust in God, that is what wisdom in the heart is. And if you have that kind of wisdom in your heart, you're going to be identified as being someone who is discerning. Someone who can understand the things of this life. 
And if you are discerning, look at the second half of verse 21, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. I just love that phrase because it sounds like suddenly I'm in a sales seminar. (laughs) Sweetness of speech (laughs) increases persuasiveness. We see Solomon over and over and over again tell us to be careful how we use our tongue. Be careful how you use your lips. Be careful how you talk to people. Be careful that you give an appropriate answer, a well-thought-out answer, that you've taken the time to give thought to what you're saying and that you're not randomly speaking like a fool. And now here, Solomon has just taken another approach to that sort of many-faceted topic. He has said, and when you talk to people, use a sweetness of speech. It is off-putting when people come at you with just machine gun, rat-a-tat, my opinion, more of me, let me keep talking, you're trying to get a word in edgewise. After a while, you're like, I don't want to be around you. And by the way, you're not convincing me of anything. Okay, so who are we on the planet? We're God's representatives on the planet. We're ambassadors of Christ on the planet. We're trying to tell people really good news. We're trying to tell people about eternal salvation. We're trying to tell people that they have the cancer of sin running through their body, but that there is a cure. There is a balm in Gilead. We're trying to tell them that we know the great physician and that there is an answer to the problem that will take them to hell. We're there trying to tell them. So should we be mean and abrupt and abusive when we're telling them? You fool, you don't know as much as I know. I know all this stuff. I know all this theology. I've read all these books. I know all this good stuff. You don't know any of that. You're probably not even saved. (laughs) You don't know what I know. Oh, but look here. Sweetness of speech. Kindness. Empathy for the person you're talking to. That kind of sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. If you're going to talk to people about a Jesus who is altogether lovely, shouldn't you be at least slightly attractive? (laughs) At very least? You're going to talk about the God who saved you from forever, the eons ago, wrote down your names in the book of life before he created anything, this fabulous sovereign salvation that has been in the mind of God since before (laughs) anyone was made or anything was made. That is one of the most unbelievable and sometimes difficult to grasp concepts ever. You're not going to persuade people of that by being mean to them or by saying, you know, well, if you don't understand that, then you're just less than me. Sweetness of speech, kindness of speech. Put that together with wisdom. Put that together with trusting God. Put that together with really looking into the word, paying attention to the word. And finally, you've got somebody who can be an appropriate representative of Christ on the planet. You can speak the things of God if you know how to be wise, how to be discerning, and how to care for other people. What have we been talking about the last couple of weeks on Sunday mornings? Looking after other people in love, treating people the way you want to be treated. Again, Old Testament, New Testament, the theme is always the same. You're not going to be persuasive to people about the love of God if you yourself aren't loving. You're not going to show the wisdom of God if you're not wise. 
You're not going to show the kindness and grace of God if you're not kind and gracious. We, we've been seeing it for weeks now on Sunday mornings and in the Proverbs. We're called to an appropriate walk in this life, an appropriate way of conducting ourselves, a way that doesn't lead to stumbling and falling, and that's the way that isn't proud, that isn't full of ourselves. The way is putting other people ahead of ourselves and looking out for their things and not just our things. And that's, boy, that's just thematic all the way through the Bible. I'm sure that even as I've been citing these various verses, you've been able to think of others because it is what the Bible says. We as the people of God, we as the children of Christ on the planet ought to be different than the planet, than the people. And that begins with what Solomon keeps talking about as wisdom. <coughs> Got it? Got it. Questions? Loud and clear. Loud and clear? Yes. Well, I know it was at least loud. I have a microphone. <laughs> you did? Well, good. I'm glad you heard that. You were uh, mentioning right at the start the honesty of weights and measures. And a lot of people don't know the story on the the quarter and the dime that have ridges in them mm-hmm. by the Treasury Department taking minuscule amounts out of God knows how many million coins and creating wealth that way. Yeah. But the circumference remains the same. Yeah. That's certainly shaving the metal off. Oh, yeah. Are you saying the government is stealing from us? How many ways would you like us to list? <laughs> I don't think we have that much time. <laughs> Yeah, we need to let you go home and go to sleep. Say good night to the internet congregation. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.